Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Autism Stories. I'm your host, Doug Bletcher, the founder of Autism Personal Coach. Autistic people are the true experts of the autistic experience, and Autism Stories is where we interview autistic people to learn from their stories, experiences, and get their advice. If you'd like to be notified about each week's episode of Autism Stories, we suggest you subscribe on your favorite podcast listening platform. We would also appreciate it if you could give us a positive rating and review, as it will help others to learn about autism stories. Now on to today's episode of Autism Stories, in which David Crisp joins me to discuss autism-specific training for frontline staff in the health and social care sectors. He also talks with me about over 100 trainings that he's completed in learning to support other autistic people. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. David, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you for inviting me. And I wanted to start out first and just get an understanding about um, where does your story in the autistic community begin? I suppose it really began, uh, where are we, in 1999, although I wasn't diagnosed until 2000 and, where are we, seven because my daughter presented as being deaf. From, I know that's an early could be an early sign of autism. In fact, they actually did tests as a baby. They, they have a test that they call an evoked response test where they attach electrodes to their head, and they said, well, the good news is the ears are working. I said, okay, does that mean she can hear? Not necessarily. It means, no, the brain's not getting the signals, so, so they did have a test later on and proved that she was hearing, but she wasn't responding to... A human voice which normally a child would do so that's a very early indication that even at the age of 12 months they were saying the dreaded autism word as it was then but they hadn't actually do much about it because it was such a child and she also had delays in other areas as well so it was all put down to global developmental delay but then as she got older she didn't start speaking until she was three didn't start walking until she was nearly two and even then she had a peculiar gate in that um, she wouldn't put one of her feet to the ground it was like a leg would be in space <laughs> it's a bit like walking on the moon it was very very odd to look at my, my son's a couple of years old and he had different issues but his was more less behavioral but more along the dyspraxic line although later we discovered that he was autistic as well but a classic case with her as you find with many autistic individuals but particularly girls she behaved differently at school to home in that she was screamed, screamed a lot as a baby and as a toddler, but then when she went to school, less of the screaming, but we got all that at home every day. So it came to the stage when that dichotomy behaviour became a big issue for her, for us. It's kind of like, they always say that when it comes to your child, the parents, the expert, and their children, which is fine if professionals have the same view of your child. If they're saying she doesn't appear autistic to us, so we're not going to even assess her, that doesn't really help, but to basically short masking and then coming home from school, she literally walk in the door, bite the dog, tack us, tack a brother the moment he came out from school. So all those sort of classic symptoms of masking. So it caused a lot of issues because we were seeing tremendous behaviour at home. I mean, she wouldn't sleep in a bed until she was five, six, seven. And in the first seven or eight years of life, when she did sleep in a bed, she destroyed about 12 beds using them as a trampoline or just tanking them apart. And she was a tiny little thing, what still is. So we ended up 
uh, as a lot of children do, and I don't know what the situation is in the States, but particularly in the UK, if there's that discrepancy between health, education and social services and the parent, they assume that the parents are fabricating or exaggerating the child's conditions, so we ended up under child protection, which was obviously an unpleasant thing. But, although eventually, um, but because I challenged them with facts, there was that there were little alarm bells going on inside my daughter's psychologist, psychiatrist, thinking, you like your facts, Mr. Chris, could you be autistic? And I thought, oh, no, I'm not going to say that. Otherwise, I think my behaviour is presented because the children's behaviour. So I did, and I thought, and because of, even though I knew a little bit about it, I thought, no, I'm not strange, like Rain Man or anything like that. So, but they did an assessment, and as a result of that, I was diagnosed as being autistic, then said, because of all the tests that come back, psychology, Test, there was nothing to present that we would present the problem as parents. There was no problem how we were raising children, but just that they presented differently, which can happen. And they then said to pursue a diagnosis. So my son was diagnosed about six to eight months later, being Asperger's syndrome, like myself, and dyspraxic. My daughter, because she had other issues, she had a genetic condition as well. She wasn't actually formally diagnosed as autistic until she was 15 and a half. And by then, it was, it was quite fast because she had every label other than autism we can have. She had nonverbal learning disability, opposition fight disorder. She had OCD. She had dyspraxia. She had learning disability. She had all the things that individually aren't autism. Put those together, then all roots lead to Rome and Rome being autism. So it was kind of fait accompli in that stage. And unfortunately, people that diagnosed were the same people that saw her when she was five and a half and at that stage because of a global developmental delay they weren't quite sure if she was definitely autistic or something that was part of her global developmental delay and they felt terrible for not being able to diagnose them but unfortunately she what that wasn't followed up so it's the delay so for me when i was diagnosed it it made a lot of sense as you probably already gathered in this short time that we've known each other by a few minutes that I can talk for England, as we say, in the UK. And I was dumbstruck. I was very quiet, trying to digest the information, because even though I'd done the AQ test, which came at, whoa, 48 out of 50, I've done really well, definitely presenting enough indicator of autism. And I saw, I knew the answer, but it was kind of, how do I go from here? Mm-hmm. What difference does it make to a man who's 42? Yeah, I am going to change my lifestyle, not necessarily, but it did make me think, all those years of being socially awkward, all those years of being a good worker but struggling to have mates in the workplace, all those years of being quite studious at school but having very few friends unless they were what we'd now call geeky or nerdy themselves. So it, was, it made a lot of that finally make sense. So it was an enlightening moment from that and a freedom from that there wasn't in anything innately wrong with me. It was just the way I was wired, basically. And which is why I call my company Why for Autism because we're just we're wired differently. It's no longer viewed as deficit being autistic, but a difference. Yes, there are some autistic people that do have learning disabilities, so in which case they could be regarded as having a deficit. But most of us, we are disabled by those around us, by society trying to conform social rules that make absolutely no logic whatsoever. You know, and unfortunately. We don't find it naturally easy to absorb those social rules. We have to learn it. And if you've got the intellect and the experience and 
my case, at the age of 42, I'd learned enough to mask a lot of those behaviours or know when to keep this shtum, as they say. So and that's about it, really. Now, you mentioned um, being uh, you starting your own company. You're the founder of Wired for Autism, which yep. offers yep. specialized autism-specific training for frontline staff in the health and social care sectors. I've, yep. I've supported many people over the years in going to the hospital, and there are, yep. seems to be so much of a lack of knowledge about particularly sensory and social communication from the medical staff. In, yeah. in regards to those things, are there some common mistakes you see made from staff in this environment? Yeah, yeah. I think the biggest thing is is that either people don't know about autism or now there's the awareness, more people are aware of it, but they're not aware of the, the vast differences throughout the spectrum. You know, that autism for some people is rain man. For other people, it's non-verbal. I mean, even when my daughter was young, she can't be autistic because she's a girl. She can't be autistic because she can speak. <laughs> you know, which is, as, as you know, it's now crazy. But it was kind of that, that interpretation. It only affects boys, and, and they can't speak, and, they're gonna, and they're, their education is subnormal, or they're a savant. They've got these great skills that they can, can drop a load of matches on the floor, and they can say the 456 matches without counting pick them up and counting them. Yes, there are autistic savants, but you're talking about very minuscule number of autistic people. And Rain Man is a great movie, but unfortunately, not autistic. Most autistic people aren't Rain Man. Equally, not everybody's like Mr. Like Spot from Star Trek, Data, and Automaton. They're, they're, they're so full of logic; they have no emotion that they can express. Other people, like myself, can be quite emotional, but you can't always control those emotions or control or see their emotions or read those in others, particularly the more complex emotions. Now, happiness and sadness is quite easy, but between frustrated and angry, very, very difficult. And it's not something you really explain. It's just something you either know it or you don't. You have to learn that if you're autistic, what the difference is. So it's those sort of things. So when I, when I was part of the Oliver McGowan training, which, which is a training they've, they've now passed into law for everybody that works in health and social care in, in England, have mandatory training in autism. One of the things you look at in that is the fact that one size fits all to autism. It's not. Now, everybody's very, very different and, and trying to explain to people that some people are autistic, very, very articulate, they can seem like very knowledgeable, some can stand in front of a room, take a really good presentation, appear to all intents and purposes, very able. But particularly if they're talking about their specialist subject or themselves in view of their autism or whatever, then it's a script. They know their own life, so they can talk about that in an easy way. But if you ask a question that throws them off-centre, they may have no idea how to answer that. So it's very, very different, isn't it? And, you know, if you're, it's easy to be confident if you're talking about something that you're really knowledgeable about. And that's the thing. It's that ability to bluff and, and all those sort of things that can naturally be very, very difficult for autistic people. And neurotypicals sometimes have more style than substance, but I think a lot of autistic people, it's substance very often rather than style, and that can be the difference. So in a hospital setting, they can present as being more or less very similar to anybody else until they come to, to perform a procedure, whether it's weigh them, do the blood pressure curve, whether to give them a blood test or whatever, not explaining what they're going to do. And suddenly this person comes into the room and starts sticking a needle in your arm, 
you know, thinking, what are you doing that? Why are you, in effect, assaulting me with a needle? You know, and, and, and then on top of that, you've got the sensory difficulties of pain. You know, some people that are autistic, even some people are having the needles to be absolute agony. Others can literally hobble into that into emergency or the ER, I should say, in America and have a broken leg and they're walking on it. Yeah, they're limping but feel no apparent pain because those pain receptors have gone through and explaining that to people. Can that not hurt? Your leg's hanging off or whatever. Very, very difficult. Or explaining symptoms. For example, my daughter will say things like, I have a headache in my stomach. She's got a headache. Does that mean she's got pain in her stomach? In other words, she's saying she's got this pain that's like a headache, but it's not in her head. And that can be very, very difficult then to come across that to somebody and explaining things. Or someone just to have echolaic behaviour, so they'll repeat something. So they'll say, oh, I talked to someone for the, to, um, to a general practitioner once, and the doctor goes, touch one leg, does this hurt? Yes. Touch the other leg, does this hurt? Yes. <laughs> so, and it turned out it was only one leg that was hurting, but his response to any question was yes. So you can imagine, so from a medical point of view, very, very confusing to explain to them, well, well, maybe they look at other symptoms. Are they grimacing? Are they limping on that one leg compared to the other? Well, yeah, there's more. You know, don't just use your eyes, use your ears, use all of your your social skills as a doctor to try and ascertain exactly what the problem is. And that's very, it doesn't come naturally because particularly in an ER situation where you rush off your feet and have to get answered just like that, but you can't always do that. And although as a community, autistic individuals get rid of the puzzle piece, but sometimes... We are a puzzle to the medical profession and in the way that in an ER situation, every patient is a puzzle and to try and find out what the diagnosis is. That's being the detective. For autistic people, would that being a detective, would that be harder if their symptoms are not showing on their face or they're behaving in a certain way? For example, my daughter will have a very high pain threshold. No, she also has joint hypermobility, will dislocate shoulders very often and it clearly dislocates. She can't feel that pain and yet... You gently brush your hand, you hold her hand when she's falling asleep too gently, and that's that causes physical pain. So you can have that dichotomy of even pain reception between one and the other. So it makes it very, very difficult then. Now, there's currently no medication that universally helps all autistic yeah. people. Yet I think so many times medical professionals prescribe either the wrong medication or the wrong dosage for autistics. Yeah. So when medical professionals are thinking about prescribing medication, what do you think are some of the most important things that they should be thinking about in this process? Well, the first thing is that biochemically, every, every, like everybody's different, but many, many autistic people are biochemically very different as well as uh, the physiology. You know, so, so their reactions to certain chemicals might not be the same as, as another person. So, for example, they may have an adverse reaction to, say, an antipsychotic, or it might not work so well. So then what do they do? They give more. And, if, and you have to then look at the reason for the medication. Is medication to control the behavior? Is it to keep someone sedated, keep them calm, you know, or, or what is it for? And sometimes it's an easy, easy option, isn't it? If someone's presenting what's regarded as challenging behavior, well, give them a sedative. You know, well... Sometimes that's the last thing somebody needs. First of all, it's not going to calm them because in the meantime, you've got to hold them down the needle in if they're scared of needles or whatever. And secondly, while they're in that situation, being touched and then the threat of that needle is going to come to them. Well. And also, very often with medication, 
by the time that medication is taken, before that medication is even taking effect, that person, by literally being left alone, has calmed down anyway. You know, in which case, what's the point? I mean, even in my last job, I know it wasn't autism, it was dementia, but we had a, had a couple of chaps have a little bit of fisticuffs, a bit of handbags at dawn, as we say. And the nurse came around with, with ready to give them both in tablets, one injection. By that time, they calmed down. What's the point in giving it now? Why are you calming them down when they're already calm? When the action of giving them something to calm them down is going to make them agitated. And that's often what they do. And I think, particularly in the medical profession, sometimes the answer is to want to physically do something to fix somebody, to make somebody better. And it's not meant in a necessarily negative way. And sometimes the answer is to stand back, give them a couple of minutes, and then see what happens. If they calm down on their own, they didn't need medication or whatever. And sometimes that's simply all that somebody needs, that bit of space, that bit of peace and quiet. In the ER, it might be difficult, but they need that peace and quiet to calm down and then go back a couple of minutes later, and they'll be very happy to comply or something. If someone says, oh, I don't want to see this doctor, go back a couple of minutes. And that doctor says, I know you don't want to see me, but all the others are busy. <laughs> Shall we start again? And most people, even autistic people, very often, they'll say, that's fine. It's that person, you know, they, they know that person because they've already introduced themselves. They've, they've got that information in their head. Yes, it's fine. You approach me. You know, it's very, very difficult. And, and it's become even harder now because we've had the dreaded COVID. I've got one on here. We've got the mask. And uh, I don't stay in America, but I know in the UK, a lot of people now are wearing scrubs. So you don't know who's a nurse, who's a doctor, you know, who they are and all that sort of thing. So that makes it even more confusing. So you can't read their facial expressions and you can't even try and figure out what this person's job role is. So it's very, very difficult. So all of a sudden, you've got somebody that you don't know if they're a cleaner or a doctor asking you all these questions. Well, you're not going to want to help them, are you? They're answering those questions. You're not quite sure who these people are. And sometimes it's something as simple as that. Wearing a name badge, for example, introducing yourself properly, showing someone your ID so at least they know who you are. Yeah. And even saying, yeah, so that is me, even though the picture's horrible. Most people, even a lot of autistic people, they say they don't do humour, but, but would understand that sort of humour, you know, so it's kind of about making it that gentle approach of not going in like a bull in the china shop and just relaxing and, and give that person a bit of time. And more than anything, plan what you're going to do to explain to that person what you're going to do now, and why you do it. Yeah. Now, one of the frustrating things to me in health and social care is that autistic people are rare, rarely asked what their preferred method of communication is. And so often phone calls are required just to even make these appointments. What, yeah. And what are some reasons you think that so many autistics want any other type of communication other than the phone to uh, make these appointments in with health and social care professionals? Yeah, I was asked to do a, a talk on this for, for um, the NHS for the hospital in the London called South Moores Institute of Psychiatry. I did some other work with them. And what and I was looking at it and thinking, why, why, why do I not like the phone? My son, for instance, is very, very capable of like the phone. It's because I know we can't read facial expression, but you don't know what's going to happen. You don't even know if there's going to be an answer, one even answering the phone. Then you might have you may have the situations I explain plainly off. I'll read this out verbatim. Sometimes you have the thing like so I was here. Anyone who's tried to book a hospital appointment over the telephone knows how stressful and time consuming it can be. If you're autistic, you throw that in the mix, it makes it even worse. First, you may have a long delay to get get an answer, get a phone call tone. Then, on top of that, you might have to 
speak to some after leave a message and thinking I don't you're expecting to speak to somebody rather than leave a message and then think what do I plan and you've only got a few seconds to do that before the dreaded beat goes off or even worse you get that I'm sure you do in the states as well you're quite very important to us <laughs> and you're thinking yeah it's that important you keep you waiting on the line for half an hour and then and, and in the meantime you're hearing the worst rendition of green sleeves this time no since Tudor time going off in your head or something even worse and then and so by the time you're actually through to human being, you've probably even forgotten what it is that you want to speak to them about. It's very, very difficult. And also, sometimes, with certain things, it's easier. Like your phone, oh, my son finds it's difficult, but phoning for a taxi is a bit easier, isn't it? You have a set script, you go, phoning for a taxi, I just want a cab to pick me up from A to B at X o'clock. But in a health bit, they may ask you questions, and, and that throws you off kilter and that's a curveball to a lot of autistic people thinking I just want to book an appointment I don't want to tell you my life story I don't want all this (laughs) sort of and and it can be very very difficult so there's lots of things on top of that Uh, and then you even have some people that just don't like using the phone because of they they may have a bit of OCD and touching a phone and speaking to somebody like that might be difficult well there's lots of different issues in there so I actually think the better if you can do it is by a text because it's written you know, that person again gets a clear response to what it is that they can write down what they're doing, which is easier to, easier to write something very often than say it, you know, whether you're verbal or not. Or, like we're doing now through like a virtual call, like a, like a Zoom call, because you have the advantage that I can see your face if I want to, you can see my face if I want to, or I can turn my camera off so, so yes, I'm still talking to you, but you don't have to see my face. Now, sometimes you may have to, but very often if you find that part difficult, you can do that. And if you're not sure what to say, you can even put things in chat. So you've got lots of different issues, haven't you? You can say, well, I don't know how to say this. So I'll write it down and see how it, and before you press send or whatever you do on, on chat, then you can read through before you send it. Is that sensible? You know, before I send it. Well, you can't do that over the phone, can you? You can't really have a set script. It's very, very difficult to do that. So there's, it's, there's lots more curveballs, shall we say, as I've said, that get in the way that makes it very, very difficult. And also then you've got the thing of, is it a good line? Can you hear the people? Is there a, bird, is there a pigeon coming in the background? I can hear at the moment, for example, dog barking. You know, is there, there's lots more things that get in the way of keeping your focus. Obviously, if you're using headphones like I am now, that's a lot easier as well. But again, it's still not ideal. You know, you, sometimes you need to know see the person or at least have an idea who it is you're talking to and some people say hello and they think yeah but i didn't get that name what was that person's name for example i had to phone somebody this morning for got a meeting about my daughter next week about health care and yeah i got the number eventually after playing the message twice but i've got a clue what her name is because it was such you know she said it really fast so i just phoned her up and she said i hope that person gets this hope you get this message I don't, sorry, I didn't get your name, even on the recording, but it's very, so even that can be difficult, can't it? And when something like a Zoom call, you'll have a name come up usually or something like that, so you even know the person that you're speaking to. Or you even get the silly situation where, like I did today, I had to make a phone call, again, for my daughter, and you're going around the houses, as we say, lots of different, trying to get the right department, the right person to speak to, and it was quite annoying, really. Now... In preparing to talk with you, I read that, you know, beyond your lived experience, you went through lots and lots of valuable training to support other autistic people. In fact, I read 
I read you've completed over a hundred different courses. So I'm wondering, it sounds like you'd be a great person to ask this question. Uh, <laughs> after taking so many courses, what do you think makes for a good course or training regarding learning about the autistic experience? I think about autism, I think is that, like I said at the beginning, if you notice, I know it's, it's very glib and said all the time, you met one person who was autistic or one, one person with autism, you met one person who's autistic. Very true. Some training is very, very generic and it's very using the old, the medical model rather than social model that, that we consider to be defective in some way. We have the, these deficiencies. And for most people, it's more a difference. You know, we, we find social communication difficult. Most of us can do it. There are some that can't. No, so it doesn't mean that we're handicapped in that sense, but we are disabled by how other people communicate with us. You know, people don't tell us what we mean and all that sort of thing. And trying to get that across in the end, of course, would be very, very difficult. That's a big thing. And also, it, it's okay just having the generic autism training, but I think as well, people need need training on specifics. Like if you're supporting someone that's nonverbal, things like teach or objects of reference and all these sort of things that aren't really covered in a blank autism awareness training which was useful and by objects of reference obtained, for example even someone that's quite able if someone is taking their swimming kit with them then they know by taking the swimming kit logically they're more likely to go and swim and they are to play golf so you don't need to necessarily tell them or show them a card that says swimming bit of a clue if you're carrying your swimming trunks you know most autistic people even people that have a learning disability aren't stupid you know why would you carry your take your swimming trunks to golf you wouldn't unless you're expecting to drown in the bunker you're not going to take it with you are you so again so those sort of things can be quite helpful because someone's really stressed you know you've got that clue haven't you so and again or, or show them a symbol for a bus then they know they're going on the bus not a train or whatever and the bus is here you know it's much much it's simpler even for people that are quite able it, that little bit of a visual clue can help you know sometimes and again and not using too many words or, or whatever you need to use. And of course, and also with, with doing the courses as well, you learn other things. For instance, a lot of the strategies you use with autism work very well with a person that's drunk or on drugs, you know, the low arousal approach, the, the, the staying calm, etc., or whatever. But then you have people who've got PDA, where pathological demand avoidance, where a lot most autistic people use minimum words trying to keep people on track with that. Because they're avoiding instructions, you may have to say something instead of saying, oh, I'm going out, maybe something. Be, do you think it would be a good idea if you wore a coat? So it becomes that person's, in that person's mind, it's their idea to wear a coat. Okay. <laughs> so that, so that, it's that sort of thing that, that you need to be cut. And they can only do that for different forms of training. And also, I did a... Uh, talk on autism and mental health often and explain to people that although autism is listed as a mental health disorder under the DSM-5, it's not in itself a mental illness. But having said that, a lot of people that are autistic do have mental health issues, particularly around anxiety because social situations don't come easy to them. So they become anxious to that or they're isolated and know that they're different to the majority of people, so therefore they feel that angst. Others don't get monkeys what anybody else thinks about them, so they don't have maybe so much anxiety around those sort of issues. So again, it, it, and that can't be covered very often in a two-hour training programme, so that's why you need backup with, and do other courses to learn little bits 
for example, when I worked for the National Autistic Society, we did like a generic two-day autism course. From there, we've learned different things as we progress and spent more time working with people. So then you've got examples to relate to. Well, you know, rather than just do a lot of things from day one. And it makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? You know, you need to talk what not to do when it comes to behaviour. But then later, you need to the best approaches to help somebody with a particular behaviour. But you need to have experienced some of those different behaviours first and so got some experience to fall back on, if that makes sense. Now, getting back to the business you founded, uh, one of the services that Wired for Autism <laughs> provides is autism needs assessments to adults or children already diagnosed as autistic to assist with obtaining appropriate education or support. How do you go about determining recommendations for the needs of each individual? Well, obviously, one of the things that, I mean, obviously, autism, the diagnosis should in itself be needs-based, but, it's, but very often it's not. It's very because it's, it's a clinical thing. You're looking at what things does somebody find difficult rather than why they find it difficult. But in this, what by a needs assessment, what you're looking at is, yes, this person's diagnosed as autistic. How does being autistic affect them? How does being autistic affect the relationship with other people? How does it affect the family dynamics? Which they can't do that in an assessment, in a diagnostic assessment because it would take forever. But so then you're, you're, you're then breaking it down to a need rather than the diagnosis. But even a pre-diagnostic thing, you don't necessarily need to have an autism diagnosis to have certain behavioural strategies. Because if you're not autistic, they're not going to do any harm. A low arousal approach, keeping calm around somebody that is what most people view as a tantrum, what autistic people and people that know autism will say is, is a meltdown. If a person keeping calm around them, if they're not autistic, isn't going to do them any harm because it's going to help someone that's maybe high on drugs or whatever. So some of the strategies are quite generic in their approach to other, other things as well. So it's a good thing. To be honest, like I was saying to people, you're not doing anybody any harm by assuming autism. Or at least having the back of your head, I always say CIBA, when I do the McGowan manager training and things like that. For, come away from this, if nothing else, for those four letters, C-I-B-A, could it be autism? If that person's behaving in a certain way, don't naturally assume they're high on drugs, naturally assume they're drunk, naturally assume they're mentally ill. Could it be autism? If there's a sense element to it or a social element, then don't disregard that could be the cause. You know, because if it is, that's maybe easier to, you know, it doesn't need a medication for it, that needs different strategies, different support packages rather than you suddenly think, oh, that person's got a mental health problem. It may be that they have, but always kinky with the back of their mind, could that be an autistic behaviour? Now, in other words, if it's an autistic behaviour, why then lock that person up because of their behavioural when the last thing they want is to be secluded, you know, and people to restrain on them, which will make them worse and give more medication, etc. Whereas what they probably need, what's the chance to get that meltdown out of their system now when they can't try and find out why they have this why they presented this behaviour and again and that goes against the grain for the medical profession just stay back and wait until something is calm because they like to do things which is a good thing they want to help people but sometimes you help people by making sure they're safe taking a step back is often bigger help than actually physically doing hands on and that can go against the way they're trained very often 
you know, as well as their, their um, wanting to help somebody. So, I'm, yes, there are cases where people genuinely do abuse, but I think most of the time it's not that. I think it's, not, it's people just not really understanding their approach in itself is causing them harm. It's not because they're not really meaning to, in the case of their they're not aware that sometimes it's, it's an answer rather than, than being active and that can be quite difficult for people. Now beyond this interview David how can people learn more about you in Wired for Autism and use your services? Well good way if they want to know a little bit about is first of all they've got my website which is wiredforautism.co.uk or they can follow me on LinkedIn under the name David Crisp and they put autism next to it they'll definitely come up with me but also, in the last few couple of weeks, really, I've opened up my own YouTube channel with a couple of presentations over the last few months. And it's called Musings from an Autistic Carer. And I try and find something a bit different. Yes, it's still wide for autism, but I thought you need something that's got a bit of a catchy title <laughs> than wide for autism than that. And that gives some idea of the sort of standard that I present. I know it's difficult because it, it, because it's with, without an audience or it's with an audience, it's a webinar, but they're not, not giving feedback. Gives an idea of how academic I am, or gives also an idea of the sort of how I approach. And yes, it, yes, it, and again, I haven't done it any flashy effects. It's just me like I am today, talking in front of the camera, and, 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 and I can just just going through going through various things. But that gives some idea. But the best one, if they ever want to know what it's like to be me, rather than you know this is my life story, etc., is on there. There's I talk about my personal experience of being falsely accused of FII, which is fabricated illness. It gives a, as a five, ten minute section in there where I talk about my experiences as a parent going through this, but also positive effect of that that I ended up being diagnosed, but also gives some idea of what my motivations are. It's not just to educate, it's to change attitudes, make people think, you know, if you see a parent, even if you're in care and you see a parent that's maybe not the best parent they can be and thinking, yeah, but they haven't slept for years, <laughs> haven't had a full night's sleep forever or, or whatever and not instantly think, be critical of somebody. And one of the advantages the thing that I have over other people, there so are all autistic people that present training, is that I have several different heads. Now, I'm an expert by experience as an autistic, though I don't like that term, an expert by experience of being a parent of autistic children and obviously an autistic parent, which is two different things, supporting people that from literally getting the bite marks and the kicks, etc., of from autistic people and delivering training. So again, there's lots of different heads there that I think it gives it so I've got that opinion where I can see things from a from a, a carer's point of view, from a professional carer's point of view, from an autistic point of view, from a parent's point of view, even from being a child's point of view. Yes, it's in my case it was a long time ago. But I can remember being bullied at school. I can remember being bullied at work and still have been in the recent years. So again, you've got those sort of life experiences that not everybody will have. And sometimes they're only experience of autism. It's their own experience of being autistic. Not there's anything wrong in that, but if you've got other views, then, then you get a bigger view of the autistic world. And I was mentioned about being expert by experience. It's a term that National Autistic Society used for me when they be doing their training. But I don't actually like the word expert. I think when it comes to autism, there are no experts, in my opinion, because everybody's different. There are, ex there are people that experience, yes, I like the experience word, but not necessarily expert. But equally, I wouldn't shoot down a psychologist because they're not autistic. So how dare you autism training? Because if they've spent 30-odd years with autistic people, you'd hope that they picked up 
how an autistic person thinks. Otherwise, what they've been doing for 30 years. So again, I don't think you just snap that one down. But equally, they can't really know what it's like to live with, with autism. They can know what it's like to help someone. But living with it is a different, different thing. And I think that lived in experience is valuable, but not on its own. I think in conversation with, with specials as well. It needs to be an all-round picture, I think. Well, David, I truly enjoyed our time together. Thanks so much for making time to talk with me today. Thank you very much, um, Doug. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thanks so much to David for the conversation. To learn more about David and Wired for Autism, check out the link in the podcast description for this episode. If you're having challenges with getting your medical needs met, you know things that David was talking about in this episode, um, through proper medical care, this is something we often support clients with regard, in regards to the coaching of Autism Personal Coach. Through Autism Personal Coach, we provide autistic adults and teens with extraordinary support to live self-sufficient and purpose-driven lives through our customized coaching. If this is something that you're interested in, then please visit AutismPersonalCoach.com for more information. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Autism Stories. And if you did, if you could tell a friend, foe, or anyone you know about it so they could have the same enjoyable experience as you when listening to Autism Stories, it would be very much appreciated. Until next time, I'm Doug Bletcher of Autism Personal Coach. Talk to you then.